Well, hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that's deep, but also easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the lobby every Sunday. Yes, and as usual, every week, if you have questions, we would love for you to send those in, because much like today's podcast, we're not going to spend time working through the reading plan. We're going to take a special podcast just to answer those questions that were sent in last month. So we're dropping July's podcast on August 2nd, which is today. You're welcome for that. You're welcome, world. So we have uh, we actually have a, a few extra questions this week, because of probably just because of the week delay and everything there, but uh, really excited to get into them. So question one came in uh, via Facebook, and it said, Hebrews 3 states that today, if you hear his voice, what exactly does that mean? What does God sound like? And so uh, just to kind of help give some clarity to it, I'm going to go ahead and read the passage that uh, he's talking about, and then we'll kind of dive in. So Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11 says this, uh, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they are going astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So uh, a couple things, it's kind of a heavy, heavy little verse there as well. Um, but a couple things I think that's interesting is, is first off, I don't think that this passage in particular is actually referring to... Um, uh, how should I put? I guess I don't think this passage is referring to God specifically leading individuals. Um, really, what this one is talking about is it's comparing um, God's command to a generation of believers, and the author of Hebrews is saying we, as this generation of believers, are called to follow that command. And namely, it would mm-hmm. be the, the Great Commission. In this case, is most likely what he's referring to, um, and he's putting it back in time, or in other words, comparing it to. Uh, when the people of God were ordered, go into the promised land, take hold of it, and uh, they refused. So in other words, they had heard the voice of God, they heard the command of God, and they refused to obey it. And today, uh, or I guess I should say in the time of the author of Hebrews, but I would say this actually applies to us today because God's, yeah. uh, God's command has not changed So nope. in the last 2,000 years. Uh, Wait, it hasn't? But uh, we we can be in danger of becoming like that generation yeah. of the Israelites who wandered the wilderness for 40 years um, instead of actually obeying the command of God. So um, as far as that particular verse goes, that's, I think, what it's more talking about. But that being said, I do believe um, that the Holy Spirit leads and prompts us today. And so I guess, Aaron, if you want to share a couple of your thoughts on this I don't subject, have any thoughts. No, have I'm just kidding. Thoughts. No, I think... I think the question is is a good one because I remember even as a kid wrestling with, I mean, as a student, I remember sitting in, in in the row of chairs with my youth pastor, I can just picture it, asking almost this question of like, how do I know if God's speaking to me? And and so when I when I when I hear the question, see the question, that's kind of where my mind goes to is how do I know the voice of God? How do I know if God is speaking? Uh, having been a youth pastor for ten years of my life, I remember one of the biggest questions was always. Uh, how do I know if it's me or if it's like God and that I feel speaking to me? And uh, and so it's, it's always a question that I think is worth answering. And one of the things that I, I actually came across about probably six or seven months ago uh, was a podcast um, that I my wife and I listen to every now and then. She listens to it more than I do. Uh, but shout out to another podcast, Havla Cunnington, uh, was being interviewed by Jesus Culture, who has a podcast. Um, There's two podcasts I dropped in one little 
verbatim. So oh, snap. Uh, I'm, I'm just a somebody now. Um, but they were, but Havla was ta- asked, being asked about how do you, how do you teach on hearing God's voice? And uh, Havla shared her story about um, how do I know if God's voice is speaking to me? And I always hear this and didn't make sense to me. And so she just kind of broke it down in four different ways uh, that, that we see in scripture. And I didn't have the scripture with me, but if you want to sh- send in a question or ask about what the podcast was, I can share it with you. Uh, but she just said this, there's four different distinct ways that we've seen throughout scripture that God uh, speaks to us. And the first one is obviously hearing God. Like it's this inner man, God speaking, like I know God has spoken. And I remember there's a couple moments in my life that I can, I can relate to that. But that's not the majority of the way I hear God speaking to me. So she, she said the one of them is like people hear God God's voice. It's not necessarily an audible God has spoken, but it's something deep inside of our hearts and our spirits saying, okay, God is speaking. I know he said this to me. Um, the second thing she brought up was this idea of a seer, in other words, a visionary, um, someone who sees, uh, sees something happening uh, and is immediately filled with faith to have it happen, but mostly takes a lifetime f- to fulfill. Uh, and so it's a seer, it's a visionary type personality. Uh, the other one she brought up was a knower. There's there's intuition that God is speaking. I know God has spoke. Uh, you, I've heard people say it's like I just know God is speaking. I just know it. I just like I just have the intuition. I just have the the the, the check in my. I, I just know He's speaking, uh, which again is not me. Uh, and so I've always wrestled with this. But then then she said the fourth one, which I'm like, this is me right here, um, and this is the feeler. Someone who feels God or senses God's emotion can step into a room, gauge the room, sense God's there. Uh, and so when, when I heard this podcast six or seven months ago, it actually brought so much relief to me because I always want to know when God's speaking and I want to be guarded with my emotion. Uh, and so when it comes to like God speaking, I think the first thing I'll say is there's many different ways he speaks to us because of how he created us. But I also think his word. I mean, I think God's word is is the primary avenue that God wants to communicate his heart for us, has revealed his heart for us. Has uh, It's the story of, of redemption through Christ. It's not about us. Uh, and so I think the first thing is if we ever want to hear know, know what God's saying, we have to read the word. Uh, but then there's just different ways we're wired. And so th- those four things, I mean, there's more to the podcast than just now, but I just thought that was a really cool thing and a really timely thing for this question. So. Yeah, I think that's great. I think uh, for me, I always think of, um, just the importance of prayer and fasting as well. Like when you're, when we're really wanting to know, um, when we really want to know certain things, like the Bible talks about, like, you know, pursue the Lord, uh, seek after him. And, and that's what we're really called to do. Yeah. And I think another, another thing, um, that I was thinking of as we were preparing this question that I think as a trap that a lot of us can fall into is kind of this, um, this paralyzing failure to act because we're kind of waiting uh, to hear the voice of God. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of the times um, we think that every single step of our lives needs to be this moment where God just comes and says, here's what you're going to do next. And you're like, okay, awesome. And kind of move forward. When, when in reality, um, like, like you just said, like God gave us the Bible. Mm-hmm. Like we have really clear commands in the Bible that we are to Psalm follow. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Yeah, absolutely. And I think really, I mean, the great commission in general is just this idea like, you know, we are called to go into the world and to make disciples. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, I mean, that's an easy one. And I think a lot of times people will be just kind of staying where they're at, not acting and just God, like, what am I supposed to be doing when in reality, like, okay, well, where has God placed you right now? And there are things that we can do where we're at right now, where we can um, really not even have to discern the voice of God, I guess, if that makes sense, as much as it is like, oh, here it is in the Bible. Um, and the other thing I think would be really cool, too, is it's it's extremely hard to separate um, 
our own feelings from the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And I think the more mature we become as Christians, a, a little bit it becomes a little bit easier. But um, time and time again, we're reminded to always always check our hearts against what Scripture says. Yeah, God's never going to contradict Himself. And so um, I remember my dad was telling me the story. My dad's a pastor, and he was telling me the story about how someone came up to him and he's like, "Hey, I, th- I feel like God is leaving me, or is leading me to." Uh, to leave my wife and kids and to go do something. <laughs> and then my dad's like, well, I don't think so. <laughs> and I like, had to kind of like walk the guy through it. But I think there's, that's obviously an extreme example. Um, but I think we can kind of just get caught up in maybe what we want um, and kind of just attributing those things to other things. So always make sure that um, if you're feeling like the Holy Spirit is leading or prompting you in one direction, always check it against scripture. Like, is this something that's consistent with the character of God as revealed in the Bible? And if so, then awesome. But yeah. that's always just a good filter to have. But I even think, and not to belabor this, I also think it's then one of the first filters is am I am I staying rooted in God's word? Because it's if if you're not consistently disciplined in your in your your daily devotions and reading God's word, you're actually pulling your you're, you're stepping further away from knowing God's voice. I mean, and even and, and like my sheep know my voice. That filter. And I, I had the challenge of this a long time ago where I was not consistently reading my Bible. And so whenever I'd feel like there's a question, I'm like, well, I, I don't know if it's my emotions, if it's what I feel, because I'm a feeler, I'm a heart person. I'm taking the Enneagram. So I, I know that my heart is where I live most of my life from. Uh, but it's it's also this tension, I feel like you, you got to check it against scripture. But if you're not reading scripture, then then you've need to, you need to do your due diligence to re-engage Scripture before making any choice yeah. on doing whatever. So Yeah, the longer you stay in Scripture, the more your heart is going to be turned towards the things of God, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a really healthy thing. So yes. uh, that was kind of a heavier question. So lighter question that we got in this week uh, or this month also is— Not heavier, uh, deep question. Deep question, that's fair. Uh, what is your favorite Bible character name? Um and so for me, I think there's 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 a couple that stand to me. First off, Mephibosheth, because that's just incredible to pronounce. That's and awesome. I think like Methuselah. Methuselah is a great one too. Um, but I've I've always been partial to, um, particularly in the Old Testament, when you're reading through it, and there's certain names um, that have made it into the modern, I guess we'll call it like modern Western context, uh, where like you hear these biblical names today, and they're not weird. So like you know, like Abraham. Uh, Moses, Which can still Joseph. kind of be a little bit weird because Abraham's not as as popular of a name, but yes, it's but still used. I still I there. know people named Abraham, right? Um, and then one of my personal favorites is that when you're talking through like the sons of Jacob, right? Like there's some of them that have normal names, and then there's like uh, Simeon, Naphtali, Gad, Issachar, Zebulon, and then Dan. I just love, I love, I love, like, I love Dan. It's not it's, even. He got lazy. The parents got lazy then. And it's not even short for Daniel. It's just Dan. And so I've you know, always been partial to that one. I was going to say something that might become a cross root, not meaning root. I'm just saying when they got, maybe they got a little older in age and they didn't want to remember how to spell some names. That's fair. So they used three letters. Jacob so. was old. So yeah. uh, for me, obviously. No offense a bit, intended. No offense intended. A little intended. bit of a, of a funnier take, but that would, that'd be mine. Those are the ones I'm always partial to. Uh, well, I think mine's pretty, pretty easy um, when I look at biblical characters. Names, I think uh, the one that stands out to me most is you know he was the launch to the priesthood in the Old Testament. Sure, uh, pretty he was a brother of Moses, uh, and it's a pretty brilliant name in my opinion. It's A. A. Ron or Aaron. No, I'm, um, that's you know I'm always partial to that, even though my name is Aaron. Uh, but on a more serious note, I, I've actually I've I've been 
pretty privy to names that have like pretty incredible stories. Uh, that's why I name my kids what I name them. That's why Abigail has a name is because I love the story of Abigail. Uh, minus the part where she becomes one of David's many wives. Well, but sure. the the story of diplomacy, the, the story of, of intelligence and beauty and, and just an incredible, I mean, she saved her husband's life from David because her husband was an idiot. Uh, so I always love the story of Abigail. I love the story of Gideon, which is why my son's name is Gideon. Um, and I think that that's an incredible story too. If you haven't read these, you should. Um, and then the, the, the one name that I, I probably more resonate with more than anything else is Joshua, just because of his story of leading God's people into the promised land. And uh, I just have a close heartfelt connection with Joshua. So, but I don't have a Joshua in my life. That's fair. I mean, yeah, Joshua is a great name because it means yeah. our God saves, I believe, if I'm going off yes. the top of my head. So yes. it's just a, a good deal. Um, and speaking of, you said that your namesake, uh, Aaron, actually started the the Levitical priesthood. Our next question is about the priesthood. So it's a good, uh, it's a good segue, bro. Thank you, bro. Uh, so in Hebrews 6, uh, well, here's our question. Hebrews 6 talks about Jesus being the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, speaking of great biblical names, Melchizedek, uh, can you explain its importance and why Jesus fits the category of high priest? And so to kind of go through what he's going uh, to go through the verses he's talking about in Hebrews 5, 6 through 11, it says, as he says, also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to those who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. That's a great last little That's a great there. last little phrase. Um, and then this section of Hebrews is actually quoting an earlier psalm. Shout out to study Bibles, helping you see these things. Uh, but in Psalm 110, verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's what Hebrews is referencing in chapter 5. Um, so a couple things. There's kind of two questions in here. Number mm -hmm. one, why is Jesus a high priest? Number two, why is... Uh, what's the deal with this Melchizedek deal thing? So first off, uh, the the easy answer as to why Jesus is the high priest is because in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, the high priest was the mediator between God and man. Um, and when I say man, I mean just humans. humanity. Yeah, humanity. Um, and so in order to have communion with God, or I guess in order to have our sins forgiven, um, we would go to the priest and the priest would then intercede on our behalf to God. And so that's what the sacrificial system was built upon. Um, in the Old Testament, we could not commune directly with God, but rather we had someone in between. Um, with the new covenant and because of the work of Jesus, Jesus is now our mediator between us and the Father. Or in other words, our mediator is God himself. So we have direct relationship with God. We no longer need someone to go between us. I know this is kind of confusing because we're getting into kind of we're getting into Trinitarian stuff and everything like that. But the the basic idea is that, that should be a question in the next one, I guess. Yeah, you know. But the, the basic idea is that Jesus is now between us and the Father. We do not need a human to stand between us, but rather we have God Himself acting as our mediate acting as our mediator. And so Jesus is uh he's referred to as the great high priest, and that's why he's referred to as that. Um the second question is okay, so what's the deal with Melchizedek? Um and Melchizedek's a really he's a really interesting character in the Bible because he pops up once and uh, he meets with Abraham and Abraham understands, I don't remember if he's Abram or Abraham at this point, but um, 
he, he meets with him. There's actually a little bit of like a tie thing that goes on where Abraham gives him some things. Um, and then it's, it's realized that Melchizedek is a priest. He worships the Lord, um, but he's kind of his own special deal. And if, if that's all there was, he would be a really minor character that we almost never bring up again. Um, but he comes up. And so, and he comes up in Psalms and he comes up in Hebrews as kind of this idea of the priestly order of Melchizedek. So a couple things that are really interesting about why this would get brought up. Um, first off, so if you'll remember, the priesthood in Israel was the Levitical priesthood. And what that means is in order to be a priest, you had to actually be from the tribe of Levi, which is the tribe that mm-hmm. Moses and Aaron were a part of. Shout out to your namesake, Aaron. Allah. And so... Uh, it was it was very much based on genealogy. If you belong to another tribe, you could not um, you could not be a priest. And the tribe of Levi was actually not given land, which is kind of interesting. But rather, they were given the priesthood as their inheritance, mm-hmm. whereas all the other tribes of Israel were given plots of land within the nation of Israel. Um, so Jesus was not a Levite. He is descended from the tribe of Judah, which is the same tribe that uh, David is from. And so, if we kind of look at uh, Jesus' human claim to the throne of Israel. Well, he's from the he's from the tribe of Judah, therefore he has a claim to the throne of Israel. However, he does not have a genealogical claim to the priesthood. And so that's kind of an interesting thing. Um and then second, this really could have been shown, uh, this really could have been put forward as a way to show how Jesus is actually belong Jesus' high priesthood is a complete break from the high priest of the past. So it's not that um, Jesus is in the same line as the Levitical priest, but rather it's that he's his own thing. He's not the he's not the fulfillment mm-hmm. of the Levitical priesthood, but rather he is basic, he he is his own high priest. If that makes sense, he's his own. It's, all, it's almost a. Um, uh, I, I just think of that as you're talking. I just think about the different like the Levitical priest, like the the Pharisaical law and the different things. It's almost like God says, that's not good enough. Human order isn't good enough. I'm going to, I'm going to show you a new way, a better way, a higher way. Uh, and so it almost feels like that kind of, it's a shift away from the, the one order to bring in a brand new, higher, better way of doing right. it. Right. And so the, the basic idea behind the priesthood of Melchizedek is that there is some type of other line of priests. We don't know hardly anything about it, but oh, we do. Yeah, but we do know that Melchizedek worshipped the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, he was recognized as a priest, and so to say that Jesus comes in this line of priesthood is to say that he is a perfectly qualified high priest in the sense of like what he's doing. But um, he's not a Levite, but rather he is a member of the order of Melchizedek. Yeah, and I think it's it's. I mean, just to just to overly simplify it, like. He's compared to a priest because of the the positional piece, the mediator role. Um, he, I mean, the veil was torn when Jesus was when died on the cross. The veil was torn because then there became access to the Father, which I think we've talked about before. Um, and so that mediator role, like Jesus referred to that, because now we don't need past like the, uh, to say to say it bluntly, like we don't need pastors to pray to God for us. We actually get to pray to God ourselves and he hears us. He doesn't need to go through the mouth of someone else. So right. Jesus said it, he said a new order, a new, um, a new way of relationship because that's the whole reconciliation piece. So we can now go to a father because of what Christ has done. So. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that kind of wraps it up for the the deeper questions this week. Although, I mean, uh, one of them could be a little bit Listen, deeper, all of them are deep questions. That's they well. just carry different. Well, the rest of these are kind of like, one of them is a, a little bit easier than one of them is kind of a fun one. So uh, question four says, we know which Psalms David wrote because it says a Psalm of David or from David, a Psalm. Uh, but in Psalm 98, it just says a Psalm. 
is there any way of figuring out who wrote it? Um, yes, in eternity. Yeah, that's basically the that's basically <laughs> Once we're all the in heaven. Um, there's 150 Psalms. Uh, of those 150, we have kind of information on 116 of them. Uh, as far And 103 of them, we actually know the exact authors of the Psalms. Yes. So for, I'm bad at math, 47, 47 Psalms. Good we, work, bro. Thank you. Um, take that. Put that on your resume. Eighth grade math teacher. <laughs> anyway. Um, if you're listening, he's, we have, he, he, he's not mad. There you go. Uh, we have uh, 47 Psalms that we're not aware of uh, who wrote them. And so, and that's just kind of, that's just the way it is. So, yeah. We may, and we may never know. And, and on one hand, okay. On the other hand, like we technically don't even know who wrote the book of Hebrews. There's speculation, there's theory, there's ideas, but there's no definitive, everyone agrees on this author. So yep. there's another bombshell for you. So there you go. Uh, not Maybe not a satisfactory answer, but it's kind of an easier one. Yeah. Um, I will say that uh, the book of Psalms is not this controversial thing where some have been taken out, some have been added, and it's existed um, pretty much as it is for a very long time. So mm-hmm. it's not that there's controversy about which one should be included and which one shouldn't be. It's just some of the ones that are included, uh, we don't have author information. Yeah. So. yeah. There you go. Okay, two more questions, Evan. You ready for these? Oh, let's uh, do it. We're going to take two more today uh, just for the fun of it. Uh, so because you told us to, shout out to listening to me. Thank you. Uh, it says you've commented in the past about uh, about you currently reading a specific translation of the Bible. How do you go about picking a translation, and what is the preferred one you always fall back on? Uh, so I think we've had this question before, but I don't think since you've jumped on the I don't know if podcast, I've ever answered yeah, it. You've never so. answered. I think this was So maybe it's just directed at me and not really you because they don't care about you. Yeah, I can reiterate though. Um, Go for it. So for me, there's a lot of great translations out there um, and there's some that are not so great. So avoid those. But um, King James. I've always been, I mean, the King James is nice because it has really beautiful language, but oh, anyway, uh, sorry. I don't getting, beautiful language. <laughs> getting, getting through all that. Um, I'm really partial to the ESV. Um, and the, the reason I like that one, it's if, if Aaron's making a joke, because I've, I've been famously into the ESV. So seven years ago, I met movie. Evan, uh, as I came in the youth pastor about seven years ago. And one of the first conversations he asked was about translation. I don't know if you remember this. I don't. Yeah, what translation do you like to preach from? Uh, and I, I told him my answer, which I'll get to in a minute, but Evan was like, Oh, you don't like the ESV. I'm like, what is the ESV? I have no idea. Cause it was a fairly new translation. It's not. It's not. It's not an old translation by any means. It's still no, it's, fairly yeah, new. It's more modern. Yeah, um, I was just. I was really into. The so ESV. he was, and so everybody that I knew on the leadership team all bought ESV study Bibles because that was what Evan suggested and pitched. So it's not a bad translation. It's one that I read here and there. It's one, but it's just funny. So I always, I always give him a hard time about ESV. So oh, you're welcome to our relationship. Um, so we're to, still in counseling for that. To go, uh, to go, kind of over because we've talked about it before. Um, there's really three types of translations that are that are helpful. So there's word for word translations, which is where um, they basically transfer ev- they they translate every word and they'll rearrange them for grammar, but that's about yeah. it. Um, there's thought for thought translations where they'll take you know sentences or whole thoughts, translate those, and there's more paraphrases where they're taking the basic ideas of large chunks of scripture and uh, translating those. Which those I would say um, like the message is a great example of that where really helpful. Um, nothing wrong with the paraphrase, it. yeah. Yeah, I would just make sure always check it against one of the other translations because obviously there's and a we can, bit more. And we can trust the guy who translated Eugene Peterson, who's a phenomenal scholar in his own right, who recently passed away. But right. um, he's an incredible individual too, and he knew the Greek and the Hebrew. And so it wasn't he wasn't just kind of whimsically throwing it out there. Uh, he was just trying to be a little bit more yeah. relevant in the verbiage and the, and the communication of it. So Yeah, definitely not a bad thing. It's just more of if you're wanting to check it against something, those are always good. Um, yeah. But the reason I like the ESV is because it's a word-for-word translation, so you're getting um, 
as close as you can get to the original text while still reading in English and not learning the Greek and the Hebrew. Um, but at the same time, it balances it out with being really readable. Um, so yeah. there's other translations that are a little bit more word for word exact. Like I think the NA- NASB is actually yeah. more um, exact. But it's harder to read. Yeah. And that's the thing where I think the ESV is, for me, is a really nice balance between between the two. Yeah. So that's why I read that one. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a great, and it is a really great translation. Uh, I mean, it's the ESV study Bible that, that I go to a lot because it's on my shelf right now. Um, and, and the Bible, the version that I'm partial to when I preach from, so whenever I preach on a Sunday or whenever I've preached in youth, uh, I've always used the new living translation, which is more thought for thought. And so it takes a sentence and takes the thought and then translates it, um, to, to the, to the verbiage and everything. because from a, um, from a readability standpoint, it's actually, a, it's a little bit easier to read, um, when you don't lose much of the, the, the translation piece as much the if that makes sense. So um, I use the New Living a lot. There's a, tr- a version that I just recently got into uh, that is more word for word, um, closer to the SV, uh, and that's called the Christian Standard Bible. Um, that's which one that is a, a great translation with an audacious name. But <laughs> yes, it's very true. Uh, so I just recently started reading that one just because every now and then what I'll do, especially because we read through the Bible in a year, almost every year as a church. Um, to read the same translation gets a little bit redundant to me or it gets a little bit uh, stale. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, so I try and change the translations here and there uh, just for the sake of it. But uh, the, if you have, like, if the majority of translations are pretty trustworthy, the NIV is always a good fallback. I think Nick preaches from that a little bit here and there. Um, but those are the two that I, or that's the one that I use mostly. Yeah. So, so yeah, like I said, a lot of great Bible translations. Yes. They're just the ones yes. that we're partial to. So here's the second question for to wrap us up. Uh, variation on a theme, but what Christian book, not the Bible, exclamation point. So you cannot say the Bible. No if books you do, the Bible. you get slapped, um, Evan or I. It has influence. Which Christian book has influenced your thinking such that you would recommend it to someone and why? So there's man, there's so many good books. Um, so I'm actually going to go – I'm going to go three. In my notes, I have two. You but cheated. I know, but you I said just, what Christian book. Do you say book? Not books. Oh, well, I'm going to pick three because it's really hard to pick one. Um, in, a, in ascending order, we're going to do that. I'm just ascending kidding. Order. I'm just kidding. I actually probably could put them in an order. I'm sure you but could. But anyway, um, so okay, so the first one – and then I was going to put them in the order that I read them. Uh, so Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis is a fantastic book, um, and it was written, I believe, in the 50s, but it was written um, – Quite quite a long time ago, yeah. and and there's this really interesting thing. I'm actually reading the abolition of man right now, which is really cool. Um, one of the chapters is men without chess, which I think is just a great name uh, or a great title for a chapter. But um, Lewis has this really uh, almost prophetic gift to kind of see where culture is going, and so he's writing these things that are. Um, I mean, I, I'm bad at math. Fifty years is. The 50s is 70 years ago now? Just about. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. Um, He's writing about these things that are completely applicable in a modern context. He's writing about them a long time ago, uh, which is really great. But Mere Christianity is really just a walkthrough of um, kind of your more common objections to Christianity. So why do people think that Christianity isn't true? Why do people object to it in general? Well, and he writes from that because C.S. Lewis was himself an atheist. Yes. And he came to faith. And Tolkien led him to faith, which yes. is why Lord of the Rings is awesome. Uh, but anyway. It's better than Harry Potter. I'll, not really. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah. Anyways. Like, that's not even a question. Um, anyway, so that's uh, – it's, it's, it's just a great book. Um, I remember – it's in two halves. The first half really deals with those uh, topics and the second half kind of deals with like, well, what is Christianity in general? 
Um, and it, someone gave it to me, uh, of all places, like kind of at a party where we were just like, and when I say party, I just mean like we were hanging out and like eating chips and playing video games and stuff like that. Um, but someone gave it to me and it was the first time I've ever, like I read the first half of the book in one sitting. Like I just sat down and I powered through during a few hours. And it really was this kind of life-changing moment where um, I was I was younger. I was kind of struggling with my faith a little bit. And, and it really helped me to kind of see um, the logical side of Christianity, which is really great. Um, and my other two, I won't spend quite as much time on, uh, but Desiring God by John Piper is um, is a really – it's a really great book. Um, I would I would I would say everyone read it, but the the basic premise of it is is what he calls Christian hedonism. But basically, this idea that um that we find our largest fulfillment of pleasure in pursuing God and enjoying His creation, or in other words, if what we want in our lives is to experience joy, the way that we do that is to pursue God to the fullest and then to enjoy the the gifts that he's given us, which sounds mm-hmm. like kind of a simple premise, but it really is this beautiful book that kind of outlaw, outlies, not outlaws, um, that, that lays out um, the different ways that we can find our pleasure in the pursuit of God, which is great. And the third one is- um, Bonus, bonus bo- book. Bonus book. Uh, Eric Metaxas is a really good author. He writes great biographies um, and- his biography on William Wilberforce is really good. And Wilberforce is one of my favorite uh, just historical characters in general. Um, he's, he was, uh, he was in the British parliament. Uh, he was in there for most of his life. And it's just, he essentially becomes a Christian. He has this conversion moment and he spends the rest of his life. Literally, I think he dies. Uh, well, he spends the rest of his life, fighting against slavery. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe he died a few days after slavery was outlawed in England. So literally almost his entire life is spent in pursuit of this goal. But I think it's it's just a this beautiful picture of um someone whose life was so changed by an encounter with with Jesus that and then he sees this injustice and he spends his life fighting it, not just for the sake of fighting injustice, but also for the sake of saying like, this is not what God would want. Mm-hmm. It's this really incredible story. Um, it's called Amazing Grace. So um, yeah, check it out. Check out those three. Those are probably, I would say my three most life-changing books that I've read. That's awesome. Uh, I've not read any of them. But they're, so. but they're really good. So Mirror Christianity I have on my shelf. Well, actually it's now in a box, but... Uh, and I've never been able to read it through because it is a very intellectually written book because C.S. Lewis is not a – he's not a preacher by any means. He's an intellect. He's an intelligent man and communicates logically. And I, I took an intro to logic class at Northwest and dropped it because I was like, I, Hard I, I, I'm struggling. <laughs> I can't keep up. Um, so I'm not a logical thinker. And so um, it's funny because like I've read a lot of books and a lot of books have changed and shaped the way that I I – I live my life in, in with my walk with Christ and who I am, uh, but I can't think of any of them. I couldn't think of any of them. I have one book that I would I, I always strongly recommend. Um, and before I say the title, I'll explain. I'll explain why is because one of the things that I understand is my responsibility is to tend and take care of who I am and who Christ is making me to be. Uh, and that doesn't just happen through my spiritual disciplines and my devotion, but it also happens through self-awareness. Um, and so the book that I read years ago at we, this was back when we as a staff did a, uh, almost a, we made like a covenant an agreement with one another that we were going to read such and such amount of books, listen to such, it was just a season of like intentionally, diligently selling out to growth and learning. Um, and the first, and I, and I recognized in hindsight that I was pretty unhealthy 
meaning I didn't have a lot of, I didn't have a lot of, uh, of um, health in who I was. Not necessarily like I'm overweight or none of those things, although that was probably true too. Um, but well, that's I, true for all of us. I, but I realized like my heart and my soul were not healthy. Um, and so I talked to a good friend of mine named Tyler, um, and he just recommended the book Soul Keeping by John Ortberg. And that is a book that I have handed out to youth leaders. I think you got a copy of it, Evan. Yep, You're welcome for that. There's one on my shelf. Um, have you read it? No. Okay. There we go. <laughs> I don't feel bad about not reading your books then. Um, but it really is a book that that navigates the conversation of the soul, like what's our responsibility. And there's a theme and that an illustration used at the very beginning uh, that talks about this. It's a, it's a, I'll do it really. I'll say it really quickly. Uh, but a, a city is built by a stream. There's a stream keeper who keeps the, the the stream from being polluted and stagnant and gross and uh, murky and all those things. And when the stream is healthy, the city is vibrant and healthy. But then uh, they fire this the 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 stream keeper and the stream becomes unhealthy, becomes polluted and dirty and grungy and the life and vibrancy of that city that's planted right by, again, it's an illustration, not a true story, uh, begins to decline and become unhealthy as well. And they realize it's because the stream has not been tended so that the, the city is not being provided for well. And then John Ortberg makes a statement. Uh, the stream is your soul and you are its keeper. And the tendency that we have is to focus outwardly, which can do right because I think it's a great commission, but we also have to attend to who we are as followers of Christ. And so the book there I think is a very phenomenal book. It's a very practical book, but it's also a really encouraging book too. So uh, that's the book that I often on a regular basis always recommend. Right. So go read it. Yeah, go read uh, go read those books. They're good stuff. Yes. Uh, so uh, I guess that actually wraps it up for this that's week. It. So thank wow, you. Uh, that was quick. Thank you so much for all the questions, guys. Yeah, keep um, them coming. Thank you for sending them in. Make sure to send in. If you have any more thoughts, uh, you can uh, the church Facebook page, the Grove Church. Uh, you can message us there, or you can email to info at grove church. Uh, just let us know your questions. We love answering them, and we will uh, in a couple days. We'll see you with the next episode.